So I don't know how many of you have actually been to the, the Black Hills. Um, I've only been there one time. Any Harley-Davidson riders been to Sturgis or anything like that? Uh, I'm not a Harley-Davidson rider, and um, I've just driven three Sturgis. But uh, one of the things that's at the Black Hills that everybody typically goes there for, uh, in, aside from the Harley-Davidson mecca of the world, is, uh, is to see Mount Rushmore, right? Um, I think everybody in here has seen a picture of it. It's a national treasure, and um, I actually never stopped to see it. We just drove by it, kind of a drive-by picture. It's like, hello, George Washington, and you know, all that. Um, it's a travesty that we didn't actually stop and, and look around, but we didn't have the time. We were there for a, uh, a family reunion. So drove by it, saw it, you know, always heard about it, saw it as a kid and pictures and so forth, but there it was. Uh, they say it takes what it took 14 years or so for the, them to sculpt that out of hardened granite, which when you think about how big it is, um, 14 years really isn't that long to chisel those faces out of solid granite. 14 years. Like that can be accomplished in a person's lifetime. And, you know, you can look back and say, wow, I did that. It's cool. I've watched it go from start to finish. The feeling of satisfaction, like when you feel what you feel maybe when you remodel your house, and you paint it, and you go, wow, this feels and looks great. I was able to accomplish this in whatever period of time. What I didn't know was in that same park was another massive sculpture out of a mountain that has been going on for almost 70 years. Now, that part I didn't know. And that is, um, there's a group of people in a foundation that are, does anybody know what it is? Okay. Like, they're building, or building, not building it, they're like chiseling it out of rock, um, an image of Crazy Horse. You know, Chief Crazy Horse, who was like one of the main leaders that took down Colonel Custer, not Colonel Mustard. I kind of get that confused sometimes. Like, we're playing Clue. But Colonel Custer in the whole Battle of Little Bighorn, and, and to kind of commemorate just the, 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 the Indian legacy, they are carving this thing out of rock. And here's, here's kind of a picture of it. Um, I saw it from a distance. But it's a, it's, it's, it compared to, to the Mount Rushmore, this is, this is far bigger. Um, the face alone is over almost nine stories high. Uh, it started, they started doing this in 1948, okay? So it's been 70 years in the making. And that pretty much is as far as they've gotten. Maybe a little bit more since this picture was taken. The first generation has already passed on that was committed to doing this. And, and, and they, they embarked on this massive project. I mean, this makes the Mount Rushmore look, look like tiny stuff compared to what this is going to be. I mean, that's just the face, but he's going to have his arm sticking out with his finger pointed and the whole head of a horse in front. That's just going to be massive. But the first generation that was committed to this is gone. Second generation of the same family is committed to this. And the third generation is now committed to this. It's just interesting. I, I, it, it seems so rare in our time for people to start a project that they know maybe they're only going to finish 5% of and then they're going to die. And the next generation is going to have to pick it up and continue to chisel away at the rock. And then the next generation is going to have to pick up the commitment and going to have to chisel away at the rock. They're questioning whether the thing's ever going to get done because it's such a massive project. What strikes me about that, this particular one, as opposed to Mount Rushmore, is, is multiple generations committed to the same thing and knowing that they may never see its completion. That is, that is just a rare thing um, in our, our day where we want to see instant results and where we 
predominantly live for things that we can accomplish in this life. But to see people who are committed to this, this ongoing work that kind of transcends generational lines, there's something spectacular about that, even if it never gets finished. Because to me, that was a picture. When I saw that and heard how long it was going to take and the fact that that's all, all, all they've gotten, I realized, you know, that is a lot like what Christians are supposed to do in terms of approaching what God has called us to. That God hasn't called us to, to, to narrow our scope down to only what we can accomplish in life, but rather to recognize, and I know it's said before, but just to get our minds and more importantly our hearts behind us, that like God is in the process of, has been in the process of forming something so massively beautiful and wonderful and eternal and attractive. Um, and he's committed to doing it over thousands of years, and we are part of the formation of this not a crazy horse, but, 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 but a, a people, um, a beautiful, um, eternal, um, God-reflecting, God-honoring people. And, and that work transcends the ages and generations that we're supposed to be a part of. And when we die, we're probably not going to see it materialize. So it's, and, and the question is before us that I want to pose to you is how do we... Resist the temptation to focus only on finding our meaning or happiness in this life and press forward to work on something that may be several generations or a thousand generations ahead of us. Like, how do we get there? How do we do that? How do we commit ourselves to something bigger than our own life, bigger than, that, that extends beyond our last breath? How do, how do we do that? And I believe the picture of... Um, Zachariah's life. And, and this story, the very first story that Luke tells in chapter 1, is a story of Zachariah's life. And, and I believe his story of Zachariah's life presents to us a, a, an answer of sorts as to how we as Christians commit our lives to something beyond us, faith beyond this life. Now, um, to tell the story, as I said, we need to back up in the Old Testament. Okay, so this is kind of the Bible study part. I want you to see how it fits in, and I want you to notice something. And there's a reason why I'm taking you to Isaiah and I'm taking you to Malachi. Because I want you to see the epic of time between promise and fulfillment. It wasn't one generation. The, the, the epic of time between what God promised and the fulfillment of what we see here in Luke chapter 2. So, this is the Bible study part, and I just want to uh, form kind of the foundation of this message clearly on scriptural grounds and show you promise and fulfillment. And pray that your hearts will just be, wow, this is what God's doing and we're part of it. Isaiah chapter 40. We back up in history almost seven centuries, a little over seven centuries from the time of Luke. Seven centuries, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This is a prophetic moment of a messenger that God is going to send, who's going to have a very specific message and a very specific task. Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, A voice cries, and the next part is the quotation of that voice that cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And notice this capital L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, 
That's a figurative way of, way of saying that the humble will be exalted and every mountain and hill will be made low of saying those who are arrogant and proud will be abased or they will be cast down. So here is a, a prophetic moment in which Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came onto the planet, um, speaks of a messenger who was who given the specific message and task of preparing God's people for the arrival of Yahweh. All right? The arrival of Yahweh. This is the prediction of the forerunner, the introducer, the MC, so to speak, of Yahweh's arrival on earth. That's seven centuries, okay? Now, again, with a little imagination, you realize generations came and the generations went. Generations came, generations went, and this didn't come to fulfillment. People just like you and me, with the same struggles, with the same sins, with the same hurts, the same pains, the same family dynamics, the same marriage dynamics going on generation after generation after generation and no fulfillment. An epic of time. So 300 years pass from the time of the writing of this. And we get to the very last prophet in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. And he too predicts the same messenger, but in different words. He says, this is Yahweh speaking through his prophet. He says, behold, I send, this is Yahweh speaking, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. In other words, I'm coming, I'm going to arrive, I'm sending somebody to prepare my people for my presence, uh, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Same basic message. Uh, a messenger who's going to play an, an, uh, an amazing part in human history of introducing Yahweh to planet Earth. He closes his, his book, chapter 4, with these words, and you're going to see them appear in Luke chapter 1 in our text. Behold, this is Yahweh speaking again, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, um, of the Lord comes. Um, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That is, they will repent of their family division, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Point of these three texts God sending a messenger to prepare the people for the arrival of Yahweh himself. All right? And again, after this was written, generation after generation came and went. Generation after generation served the Lord, sang the Psalms, offered sacrifices at the temple in hope that someday this would materialize and Yahweh would actually arrive. The point I want you to simply observe is that nearly seven centuries pass. It's a reminder that like we think in terms of minutes and hours, months, and years, and God thinks in terms of thousands. And he moves in epic proportions. Um, he is not on our timetable, and we, the, the Bible is clear about that. So, all of this time passes. Finally, this is where we come to Luke chapter 1. Finally, we come to a day in which after all of this waiting and anticipation, um, this comes to fulfillment. And I thought it would be helpful just to read this story um, in its entirety. This is verses 5 through 25. And you have to imagine, this is like, in one sense, uh, Zechariah, who's a priest working in the temple, it's like any other day. 
Like you and I get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee and then go off to work. Like this is one of those things where, well, get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee and go to the temple and do your job. Like any other day. It says, verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. It's interesting, just as a side note, how much the Lord specializes in overcoming barrenness, even in elderly women, in the whole span of the Bible. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, it's on duty, this is his job, verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he's doing what's customary, what's normal, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of of incense. Now, notice the people are praying There is a group within the people of Israel that are still praying and longing and looking for the fulfillment of promise. Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now it's not a normal day, all right? This is now exceptional. It's extraordinary. In the middle of this ordinary, customary working, now something extraordinary happens, and it says... Verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, as most people are when they witness or come in the presence of a celestial being, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, who we know as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. This guy has a very special purpose, and he's been set apart even before um, he was born. And he and he will turn the many, uh, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's Malachi chapter four, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. That's a really polite way of saying, my my wife's really old. How's this going to happen? And the angel answered him. Like, he's looking for a sign. But it's a sign that is generated by disbelief. It's kind of ironic, by the way, that he says, I'm an old man. And here the angel says, and I am Gabriel, like, I come from a very special, powerful place. I stand in the presence of, of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Like, you're going to have a kid. God created the world. He can easily, you know, give life to a, to a broken womb. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that those things took place, these things take place, because you did not believe my words. Zechariah is not a perfect man. He had a tough time believing, um, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. There's a sense of anticipation. Where is he? Where's the priest? He's, he's uh, been there a long time. Verse 22, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that they had seen a vision in the temple. He had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and reminded um, 
and remained mute. Sorry, there's, the, like the, there's a reflection right here. And I should probably just turn around and read it this way, right where the words are. Um, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Oh, my goodness. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Just as a side comment, she probably was quiet about the fact that she was pregnant for the simple reason that no one would believe her until she actually started to show. Who wants to say, yeah, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant and I'm 86. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. I don't believe you. So she just waited, you know, and, and so just grace herself. So there you have, in short, it's like seven centuries of waiting, and, and this, is the, this is the time. It's like the Lord finally says, after these epochs of time, after generations have passed, generations who have hoped and lived and died and worked, all of a sudden, the Lord's like, now it's time. And he tells this old man, in the, in the context of an ordinary work, he tells him that, you know what, your son, born of, of your elderly wife, um, this is the guy. This is the one who is going to prepare God's people for the arrival of Yahweh. That is a huge thing, you know? That's, that's going to be your son. No wonder he was so like... First of all, it's hard for a person probably to believe that an old lady can actually have a son. But the second of all, that he would be that important or impressive. Just amplifies not only the importance of John the Baptist, but even more the person that he's preceding. So, as I said, I, there's epic of time. People living and dying. Not too much different than us. Um, generations come, generations go, and there are promises we still do not see fulfilled. How do we live when we know that what we're doing um, isn't going to be seen by us in our lifetime? How, how is it that we, we, we chisel away at the crazy horse um, knowing that, that it's, it's, it's transgenerational? One thing that strikes me about this story um, just that the net effect of the fact that it was fulfilled um, is the fact that God's promises are 100% absolute and certain. That is, um, one of the primary ways we live beyond this life, we con- uh, contribute and commit ourselves to something bigger than us, is by maintaining faith in the fact that God's promises are always certain, no matter how long they take to be fulfilled. That's how this struck me, because all those years, all those centuries, Isaiah and Malachi, and all of a sudden the day came, and it's like now's the time, and through a miraculous way, God overcame a a dead womb, and boom, it happened. And that's the same kind of confidence we're supposed to have about all of God's promises regarding our future. However many generations there are still left um, until the great and grand um, uh, work of God materializes. In fact, you just, it, the, the Bible itself is, is populated with stories of prophecy, fulfillment. Prophecy, fulfillment. That God promises and God delivers every time. And unlike, you know, elected officials, I should say some elected officials who want to say what people want to hear and make promises they know they can't deliver on and somehow retain their position in, in, uh, in office, God is one of those who, if he lets one promise fall to the ground, he would cease to be God. That means he has a 100% success rate. 
in everything he promises because his name is at stake and his power, his omnipotence uh, is at stake. Every promise. And you have just over and over, you have examples, historical examples of God saying, listen, Noah, I'm bringing flood on the earth and I will save you. Flood comes and he saves Noah. He promises Abraham, listen, even in your old age, I'm going to send you a son and he has to wait for a son. And God delivers on the promise, and Isaac is born in miraculous ways. God promises Israel a land, and God leads them into the land and delivers on his promise. God promised his people after they sinned and were exiled, dispersed. He said, I will bring you back into the land. And and he's good on his promise, and he brought his people back into the land. He promised a messenger that would precede his arrival, and, and the messenger shows up. The point being that this this whole story tells us that God promised and God delivered. And that, that, is, that is something that God's people, we, have to cling to. And actually feeds our faith to live beyond this life. Because there's a, there's, a, there's a wearying, tiring effect that time can have on faith. Right? When it, in, in, in 2 Peter addresses it. It's like, well... The Lord's not coming right away, so is he really coming? We've only waited 30 years, but he hadn't come yet. Jesus gave us parables about this. There's that there will be a sleeping effect on people if hope is not kept alive, supported by the promises of God. And they will stop being watchful. They will stop being vigilant. They will stop being hopeful and expectant that God's going to deliver. And I wonder how many of us have, have had a sleeping effect on our hearts and minds and our faith and our hope because, you know, it's been two millennia and God's promise of a second return hasn't happened yet. If, if you were to take just a, a little analysis, a self-analysis of your heart, like, how expectant are you? How expectant am I? How, is this something that I watch for and look for, or have I convinced myself, or have we convinced ourselves, well, it hasn't happened for 2,000 years, so, yeah, I don't know if it's going to happen. There's a sleeping effect on our faith. When that happens, it's no wonder that people just live for this life, because you don't really believe it's going to happen. That's where you come back to, you know what? In our praying, in our encouragement of each other, in our Bible study, in our meditation, to say, Lord, keep my faith alive in the certainty of your promises. That just as a day came in which John was born, John the Baptist, a day on the calendar is coming in which God will fulfill his promise, regardless of whether the world believes it or not. We don't live beyond our life without trusting that God's promises are certain. When you believe they're certain, then there's something to live for beyond your own life. That's just the effect of the fulfillment of the passage itself. Two, something else that's central to this passage um, is it centers on um, the presence or the arrival of God himself. That is, to put it in terms of principle, living beyond your life requires us to stay centered on the prize of what the, the believers throughout the ages have longed for most, and that is the presence of God. The presence. John's 
the, uh, John the Baptist, that is Zachariah's son, his main purpose in life was to prepare God's people for Yahweh's arrival. That's his job. Prepare the people. I mean, when Yahweh comes to earth, it's always associated with one of two things, and sometimes both. Judgment, wrath, and destruction, and grace, salvation, blessing, and life. Both of those things are envisioned when Yahweh comes to earth. And so John was supposed to prepare his people, like, listen, God's coming, so let's get things straightened out. Like, if you've been messing around in your religious life, you've been messing around in your faith, and you've been worshiping at one altar, the altar of Yahweh, and you're serving another God, then listen, time to get rid of that stuff. He's coming. That's his job. And that's what he did. He preached. He preached a, a word of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And lots of people responded to him, especially amongst the poor. They came out, they confessed their sins and were baptized as a public testament that they were humbling themselves before God and before his arrival. Others, the proud and arrogant, stood at a distance, those who were in power, and they said, ah, we don't need this. And within a short time, you would see, in fact, that the ministry of John would, be, would make the, the mountains low and the valleys high. But those two things are, are part of the arrival of Yahweh. What they couldn't see was that the coming of Yahweh to earth would come in two phases. Now, just stop here for a second. Just, um, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, when it says, you know, a voice will cry in the wilderness, preparing the way before Yahweh. That is a massive um, way of saying that Jesus, when, his, when he arrived, was it's not just a guy, right? Not just, this is the, this is the presence of Yahweh taking human form. But in these two phases, he came the first time not to, to judge the earth. But what does the Gospel of John say? To be judged. Like he came the first time to actually accept upon himself the condemnation that someday he will pour out on the earth. In you and I's stead, so that we could actually find safe haven and refuge on the final day because God paid our price. That's phase one. Phase two's coming. Phase one and phase two. But really at the center of both of those things is, is the arrival of the presence of God himself. And that is, I don't, I don't know how to say it without being cliche. It's like for those who have tasted in a very personal, experiential way that the Lord is good, you've come to know even by way of taste that he is better than sex and he's better than money and he's better than the praise of men, even at just a taste level. And throughout the scripture, the treasure of God's people always has been the great reward and the heartthrob of God's people has been the presence of God himself, right? It's not the money we want. It's not the external blessings that we want. Most of all, God, we just want you. That's what we want, right? It's like, and you hear it all through. The, like the, 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 the God, um, God says to Abraham, it's like, um, I am your reward. Beyond the land, it's, it's me. And David could experience it and say, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's, you know, the, the psalmist can say, you know, whom have I in heaven uh, but you? And, and there's none I desire beside you. Or, 
or when David says, there's one thing I ask, and that's what I seek after, that I may um, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and, and inquire in his holy temple. And, and Paul would continue it in the New Testament. Only he, 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 he brings it into focus in Jesus saying things like, you know, I've counted everything as, as lost and not in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, for whom I am suffered the loss of all things, that I may know him. And he could talk about him as the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom are found and speak of, of teaching about Jesus as, as talking about the unsearchable riches of Jesus. So the treasure in the Bible of God's people has always been his presence. Amen? Just we want you. And I don't know whether you, you, you feel that or not, but that, and if, if, we, if we don't have a longing for the presence, which is the center, center of all the treasure, then... Um, something's wrong and something's again gone to sleep it is part of part of our Christian faith and part of worship and part of our daily activities is to keeping the romance alive with the Lord how do two lovers keep the romance alive when separated by distance well they think about each other they write each other they they look at pictures of each other. They listen to love songs to remind themselves, this is, this is the one I love and I can't wait to be back with that person. And so we gather together in worship and we sing our love songs and we sing about the glory of Christ and we hear about the glory of Christ. We hear that God is treasure. Why? So that we actually feel what we sang and that is, you can have all this world, but just give me Jesus. The romance is supposed to be alive, and churches are still romance. When there's no romance for the groom, bride and groom, a big metaphor in Scripture, when the bride is like, oh, I don't really care if you come or not, there's a problem. But when the heart's like, oh, you know, your promises are true. Someday I'm going to see your face. Then you're willing to live beyond this life. And only then, to keep in the romance alive. And here's the thing. It's just a, I put this in context. Right now, what we experience of God in terms of joy and happiness is in part. That is, it's, it's, without sounding depressing, it's somewhat limited. I mean, Jesus came and died to pave the way for God's presence. And in some ways, Jesus was present, or God was present in, in Christ. And then God gave us his Holy Spirit as a, a deposit of his presence. But you know what a deposit is, right? It's just a little piece of, of the fullness of what's coming. He gave us a piece of himself. That means the fullness is, is still future. Like our happiest moment. I mean, right now, our experience, even the taste that the Lord is good and experienced in the romance at whatever level, he loved Christ. It's still mingled with our doubts and our struggles and our pains, our disappointments. That's now. Right now we see in part, we experience in part, we taste in part. But someday we will know him as he knows us. And that day is coming. And that, that's what we're supposed to, to live. That, that's... that's probably beyond our generation. But to keep the romance alive and know, one, your promises are true, and two, the day is coming when I will experience you 
face to face. And then is when the pain will be gone. Then is when the fullness of joy will be experienced uh, without the restrictions of our fallen humanity. That's contrasted to the message that our world is driving into our children's lives and into our heads. That is the core value that, that around which our entire culture kind of orbits is live with all the passion, with all the energy for your best life right here, right now. And if it's beyond this life, it's not worth living for because it's irrelevant. That's, that's our culture. Everyone wants to be happy. And to be happy means I feel good. And that is, that is such a contrary voice to what God says. He says, listen, trust me. You can taste me. You know I'm good. You know my promises. Keep the romance alive. But you know the best days are ahead. They're not right now. That's a different voice that says the best days are right here, right now, so you might as well scrape together all you can and just live for now. And that's, that's, that's the message of our culture. And both believers and non-believers have noticed that, that we live in a very hedonistic culture. One particular writer captured it this way, and, and I just, just, it just kind of helped my thinking. She, she wrote a, 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 a rather insightful little piece on... Um, on what makes people tick today. And, and she wrote, and she was contrasting uh, the ancients like Aristotle, how they, what they believed about happiness, human happiness, and, and moderns. She said, whereas Aristotle believed that happiness was the byproduct of a life of virtue, that is virtue first, honor, integrity, um, wisdom, and that joy or happiness is, is a side effect of the pursuit of those things, He said, we've come to associate modern society right here, right now, America, to associate happiness with a more vague metric, vague, never really know if you get there or not, of feeling good. Rather than thinking in terms of living virtuously, and if if indeed her read on Aristotle is correct, then he's, Aristotle's partially right, we'd say, have to say that, you know, um, virtue is not number one. It's a relationship with God, and it's a grace relationship with God that pours out and materializes in terms of virtue. Um, But anyway, back to this. uh, We've come to associate happiness more with the avoidance of pain and the pursuit of pleasure. And if that's the core value of our culture, if that's the core value of you in this room, then you can see how it plays out in terms of your life. If something doesn't make you happy, a marriage, a relationship, a job, then what do you do? Well, I'm supposed to be happy. So I'm going to move on to find something that is less painful and more pleasurable. And that operates everywhere. People will leave based upon their internal idea of I'm supposed to be happy. I'm supposed to feel good about my life. Marriage is supposed to be easy. Family is supposed to be easy. So you you move around and and try and move your life and circumstances around to my kind of, so you get this sense that, okay, I'm, I'm kind of arrived. But again, it's a vague metric because no one ever arrives. And it certainly doesn't seem to square with the life of Jesus. If someone was to ask Jesus, hey, listen, how good does it feel to be persecuted? I think you'd probably say, you know what, being persecuted is, is not fun. Well, how good does it feel, Jesus, to have your disciples abandon you and to betray you? I'm sure he'd say, it doesn't feel good. How good does it feel, Jesus, to go to the cross? I'd say, it doesn't feel good. In fact, I, in fact, I asked the Lord repeatedly, 
Like, take this cup away from me. But he served something deeper rather than his own temporal pleasure or avoidance of pain. You see? Very different. There was a deeper love. There was a deeper joy found in the simple fact that he surrendered himself to the one he loved the most, namely his father. And he chose the way of pain, not pleasure, to save us. And then calls us to do the same. What do you think bearing a cross means? So in terms of the ethic of the Christian heart, you know, if you're in a difficult situation, maybe it's a career, maybe it's a marriage. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to follow the call of God and surrender to his will. That's what you're supposed to do. And endure. That's what you're supposed to do. That's a different ethic. It's a different heart. It's a different call. It's living for a promise that's beyond you. It's living for a pleasure that's bigger than your own context. Okay, last. Um, the first two are really t- like truths to believe. Um, the promise is certain. And again, this is a constant thing. It's just maintaining that faith in the certainty of God's uh, promises and centering on the prize of God's presence. But then in this story, we find this, um, this practical outworking of faith. Like, how do you live day in, day out? And the picture or the truths that come to the surface are walking in simple obedience and expectant prayer. Simple obedience, expectant prayer. You notice how they're introduced, both Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God. Doesn't mean they were perfect, because he doubts later. That's just it means they trusted the Lord. It means that they humbled themselves before the Lord. It means that they did their best to surrender themselves to the commandments and the statutes of, 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 of Yahweh. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in their years. That is, they just simply endeavored to listen to the Lord's voice and surrender and, and obey it. That's it. There's something that needs to be recovered about the need for simple obedience. And, uh, and we must never make the mistake of thinking that in talking about uh, obedience, we somehow diminish the centrality of grace. Actually, if a person really gets the costliness of grace that our king laid his life down for us, well then, it should intensify our desire to surrender to the king who gave his life for us in simple acts of obedience. Simply listen to his voice and follow him. That's, that's, they're, they're, they're viewed, these two are viewed um, in, in lighted colors because they simply obeyed the voice of the Lord um, in faith. There's truth, huge, deep truth that we need to recover in the church that the song conveys that um, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The very fact that we trust him shows itself in the fact that we're willing to surrender to his voice. So you want to know how to walk forward like in this life um, and to live for something beyond yourself? You know what? Just stick with simple obedience to the voice of Christ. 
Stick to it in your marriage. Stick to it in your parenting. Stick to it in your job. Stick to it in your language. Stick to it in the way in which you think about people. Stick to it in the way in which you serve people. Like simple obedience. And you know what? Those acts of simple obedience, motivated by faith, um, are part of what God uses to form this massive thing that he's been doing for thousands of years. Just simple obedience. We make it way too complex sometimes. It's just, you know what? Just listen to the voice of Christ and surrender in faith and obey. That's not rocket science. That's what I need to do. Just endeavor to live the words of Christ in my life, knowing that someday he's going to bless it in ways I can't even imagine. I mean, look at this guy was just doing his normal stuff, ministering in the temple, and look how God blessed it. Through his simple faithfulness, God changes the world and gives him the joy of having a son who would introduce Jesus. The second part there is just expectant prayer. You know, I told you um, in, in message one that uh, Luke has a special place for prayer, and he does. You'll notice um, in verse 10 that when he enters the temple, Luke takes the time to describe a whole multitude of people who are praying. These are the ones who are keeping the romance alive, and these are the ones who are, who are still believing that God's promises are going to come true, even though it's been seven centuries. They're praying. They're praying outside, and then Zechariah goes in, and he, he lights incense at the altar of incense. You know what incense is a symbol of in, in the Bible? The prayers of God's people. So people are praying outside. He's doing something that's symbolic of prayer inside. Where does the angel appear? But at the right place, right side of the, of the altar of, of prayer, of incense. And then in that moment in which the angel speaks, the first thing that the angel says to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name. John. Your prayer has been heard, and I, I don't think he was praying for a son at this point in his life. Um, otherwise, he wouldn't have doubted his word afterwards. But I think he was doing the priestly thing, and he was praying on behalf of the people for redemption to come nigh, to come near. And the angel shows up and says, you know what? The day of redemption that the priests have been praying for and which you just prayed for has come, and God answers his prayer. That is a, that's part of the heartbeat of, of where we're to be as, as followers and part of keeping the romance alive is, is, is in, in our, our daily communication with the Lord and praying with expectancy. And I say expectancy because the crowd was wondering outside, where are you? Like there's a sense of anticipation. And I'll just have to tell you personally, and I'll, I'll close with this. Um, I've told this to the, the staff. I've asked them to pray for me on this re, uh, regard. Is my own prayer life. I'm a praying person. I get up in the morning and I pray. And I pray throughout the day. I do. I, if you were to ask, look at my life, an honest statement would be, I, I do pray a lot. But I was, I've been deeply convicted over the last months that I don't pray with expectation. And, and this coming from the scripture, I'm, I'm meditating on Psalms. Psalm 58, 59 comes in. And I hear David praying in the midst of opposition. You know what he says in the middle? He says, I will watch for you. 
And your steadfast love will meet with me in my conflict. And, so, and over and over again, as meditating on the psalm, I just realized these, these guys prayed like they knew God was going to show up on the battlefield. A sense of anticipation and expectation over and over and over again. I'm meditating on these psalms. It's like the Spirit of God just hit me with a hammer over the head and said, you don't pray like that. And it's true. I mean, to pray with faith means to pray with expectation that God in his love actually hears and actually cares and will actually respond. And here's the thing. Even if it's beyond my life to know that God heard, that's part of keeping the romance alive. And I don't know if that's where you are, but I'll tell you, you know, if, 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 if we as a body of people are not just praying, but praying in line with God's purposes, praying redemption, praying God... Um, Let's his glory shine. Let it flood the earth like the waters cover the sea. And if we're praying with expectation, Lord, we know you're going to do this, even if we don't see it come to fruition in our life, but we're going to keep on praying, trusting and expecting you to answer like you answered Zechariah. It's a different kind of life. And, uh, and I, it, this, this, is, this, is, this is, you know, where I am. And I just, I believe wholeheartedly that the Lord is, is stirring. And I, I pray he's stirring in your life too. You guys want to play at this thing called Christianity. You want it to be real. You want us to trust these promises true. I want to keep the romance alive and have a passion, a genuine passion for the greatness of God and the presence of God that's still future. And to know that when we pray, um, he listens and just to take simple acts, steps of obedience. Let me ask if uh, um, that's 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 the message. You want to know how crazy horse is going to come to fruition in Christian version? This is a way. Um, maybe take it just a, a moment and make these three points your prayer for your own life. Make these three points your prayer. Are you maintaining faith in the certainty of God's promises? And if not, ask him to help you. Are you centered on the prize of God's presence? Or is a romance dead? Are you walking in simple obedience to the Lord? Or are you wandering? Are you earnestly praying with a sense of expectation that God hears and God answers? Or are you simply, as I have, gone through the motions? Take a moment and just pray these for yourself and for our church.